Hello, everyone, and welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Justin Scase, Senior Editor of the EHS Daily Advisor and Safety Decisions Magazine. Today's regulatory landscape can be confusing to say the least for environment, health, and safety professionals, especially when it comes to environmental compliance. The Trump administration has pursued an overall deregulatory agenda at the federal level while emphasizing compliance assistance over enforcement. However, this is at the same time that more stringent regulations are being introduced by many individual states. Also, many large companies have already begun compliance efforts and spent a lot of money to address rules that are now facing revision or replacement proposals. It's all resulted in a complex patchwork of regulations. So what's an EHS manager to do? Fortunately, in today's episode, sponsored by Cority, our guest can provide some insight and help us sort through the issues. Joining us today for our discussion is Ian Cohen, Product Marketing Manager for Cority's Safety, Environmental, and Sustainability Solutions, where he works to deliver products to the market that are designed to meet clients' needs in an ever-changing regulatory environment. Ian previously served as Environmental Product Manager at Cority, and prior to joining Cority, Ian was an Environmental Specialist at Florida Power and Light Company, where he served as the Project and Program Lead for the company's enterprise-wide Environmental Compliance Management System. Ian was also a member of Florida Power and Light's Sustainability Lead Team, and supported annual reporting and a myriad of sustainability projects. Ian holds a master's in environmental science and a bachelor's in biology, both from the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, and his research has been published in the peer-reviewed journals Annals of Botany and Zoologica Scripta. So Ian, thank you very much for joining us today on EHS on Tap. Hey Justin, thanks for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity to join you. Yeah, we're very glad to have you here. So let's get started. In 2018, we saw some really big changes at uh, the EPA proposed replacements for the Clean Power Plan and Waters of the United States rule, uh, regulations to revisions that would uh, benefit the coal industry, and an overall move toward deregulation. Now, in 2019, we're starting out on a little bit of a different foot with a change in EPA administration, the appointment of Andrew Wheeler, and with a Democratic majority House. So will 2019 be a different year? Will rollbacks continue? That's a loaded question there, Justin. Uh, I'll start <laughs> off with, will 2019 be a different year? Um, sure. Outside of the, the change in 2018 to 2019, I, I, I can tell you I don't have a crystal ball, but I really do think that 2019 will look a lot like the latter half of 2018 when Andrew Wheeler took over as acting EPA administrator. Um, mm -hmm. I think Mr. Wheeler will probably be confirmed by the Senate in, in the not-too-distant future. Uh, it, it only takes a simple majority to, majority to confirm presidential nominees at this point. Uh, I have heard inklings that it, there may be some uh, some some Republicans that may jump ship, but uh, at this point in time, I don't see them getting uh, getting fifty one uh, senators to 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 not confirm him. Uh, now we all know that Mr. Wheeler was a former lobbyist and a lawyer for Murray Energy, and he's made plenty of comments on the record about air emission regulations and his disfavor or dislike for for some that are on the books. Uh, he's also worked at the EPA in the first Bush administration, so. I really do expect that he'll be a whole lot more successful than Scott Pruitt was mm -hmm. uh, because he really understands the technical hurdles to rolling back regulations mm -hmm. better. And, and he's also keen on complying with the uh, Administrative Procedural Act, 
um, so that the courts don't use a technicality to invalidate those rollbacks. Um, that said, the new Democratic House um, does throw a bit of a wrinkle into the mix. Uh, they've made it clear that they are not going to hesitate to use their oversight role. Um, and they've also proposed the Green New Deal. So I expect that uh, EPA officials will be spending a whole lot of time up on Capitol Hill, uh, especially more than they did in 17 or, or 18. Um, so I know the uh, House Energy and Commerce Committee, uh, which is actually chaired by the New Jersey Representative Frank Pallone, uh, they've held hearings uh, regarding what appears to be lax enforcement by the EPA. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second part of your question, will rollbacks continue? Uh, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't. Uh, there's nothing in the EPA's agenda that suggests otherwise. Uh, but it's important to remember that in order to repeal existing regulations, the Trump administration actually has to convince the courts that there are sound legal reasons to ignore all of the work that was done to promulgate those regulations in the first place. Uh, and the APA actually requires agencies to demonstrate that the rules are not arbitrary and capricious, uh, which has been used to uh, actually invalidate some of the rollbacks that were done early on in the administration. Um, so, you know, that co-equal branch of government uh, that is the judiciary will have a lot to say about the rollbacks that are that are pending and, and the rollbacks that have yet to come. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, many of those rollbacks that the EPA has proposed are, are already tied up in court. So in, in 19 and 20, EPA is going to be spending a whole lot of time defending uh, these rollbacks, including Waters of the U.S., the new clean power plant uh, replacement. And, you know, really where Trump has been successful or where the administration has been successful is, is regulations related to the use of public lands. So we've seen expansion of mining and oil and gas exploration, mm-hmm. logging on federal lands. Uh, and this is really no small feat, of course. We, we do know that that has uh, potential impacts, both positive and negative, right? From an economic perspective, it's positive. From an environmental perspective, it could be very negative if not done well. Um, but it, EPA has also been propo- uh, been successful in changing the scope of proposed regulations. And I think that's probably likely to continue um, uh, over the next few, you know, few years uh, that we have with this administration. Okay. So you mentioned enforcement just a little bit uh, a little while ago. So in the past two years, We've seen enforcement at the federal level drop significantly. Uh, criminal convictions are down and civil penalty amounts are at levels not seen since uh, around 1994. Now, the Trump administration says that this is a result of more compliance assistance than financial penalty and the level of environmental protection in the U.S. has not wavered. Of course, opponents tell a very different story. But from a company's uh, standpoint, a business's standpoint, the big question is, is EPA enforcing the currently enforced regulations? What's the level of risk for enforcement for noncompliance? Yeah, I think first it's important to note that that this trend um, of of lower enforcement rates uh, actually started late in Obama's second term. um, Mm -hmm. And the administration at that time actually blamed declining budgets due to uh, congressional austerity measures. Ah. Uh, that were put in place by the Republican-controlled Congress at that time. Mm-hmm. So under both Trump and Obama, the APA has actually stressed that it's uh, prioritizing more complex, high-impact cases. Um, what's not clear to me, is, and I'm betting I'm not alone in this, is what qualifies as complex and high-impact. Mm. Uh, so you've got VW and fiat emission scandals. Uh, mm. um, those would certainly seem to qualify as uh, complex and high-impact, and, and those penalties from those two cases are uh, certainly massive in, in nature. Um, you know, when this the, there was a recent report talking about the the regulatory the drop in in penalty, you know fines and penalties, and, and when that report came out regarding enforcement actions, um, a spokesperson for the EPA said that it is increasing the deterrent effect of enforcement programs through criminal enforcement actions to address the most egregious cases. 
Mm. Um, I guess my question back to EPA is who's defining what the most egregious cases are? What's the threshold for egregiousness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, is it the same as complex and high impact? I, I just don't know the answer to that. Um, I read several other um, uh, reports that not only was uh, enforcement substantially down, but also on-site visits and inspections are down too. That's a big risk, obviously, because now you're looking at that audit component um, that is supposed to catch people before things get really, really bad. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it also means that the risks of being caught by a regulator and subsequently fined or penalized appear to be lower than at any time in the last two decades. It's a little bit concerning, I'm, I'm sure, for, for many folks out there. Mm. Uh, I'd actually read another report by the uh, Environmental Data and Governance Initiative, which uh, found anecdotal evidence based on uh, a number of interviews with current and former EPA employees that uh, the agency under Trump is really using lax enforcement as a way of rolling back regulations. So they're not actually going through the rollback process. Mm. They're just not showing up enforcing the rules. Uh, ah. and, and if this is true, I, I would argue that this is a major violation of federal environmental laws and EPA's overall mandate. Mm. You know, uh, and, and with that said, I guess, you know, the risk of EPA enforcement actions are exceedingly low at this point, as it, it, at least it appears like that on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of these enforcement cases that are still pending uh, are going to drag on through the appeals process. Um, I, I don't want to be clear to the people who are listening to this. No company should cut corners when it comes to environmental regulations. There right. are a, a whole host of other risks associated with that. Right. Uh, reputation, financial losses. Um, so it's not a good idea to, to even consider that just because somebody's not looking at you. Uh, because we live in a 24-7 hour media cycle. Mm-hmm. People are always watching at the end of the day. Absolutely. Um, and the last thing I wanted to say on this is, is that it's also important to remember that uh, a lot of the programs that EPA administers are run by state environmental agencies. So I think we'll start to see some states, uh, primarily those with larger enough budgets and Democratic leadership potentially, be a bit more aggressive when it comes to that enforcement action. Great. I, actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's uh, that was the next thing that I wanted to ask you about. So with with EPA not as active in establishing new regulations, it seems like many states, uh, they appear to be picking up the slack. So what are the regulatory trends at the state level now and how will they affect businesses? You know, what I'm seeing is a, is, a, is the trends are, are they vary widely by state. Mm-hmm. Uh, States, uh, again, with those Democratic legislatures or, or especially governors, they're much more apt to act in the face of a, of a, weaker, a weaker EPA, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, we, you know, California's a perfect, perfect example, right? They're moving ahead with trying to protect the waters of the state that may lose those protection under the EPA's replacement for the waters of the U.S. rule. Mm-hmm. You've got several governors that have announced plans to combat climate change and boost renewable energy in their states. Um, you've got fuel efficiency standards, uh, which are a hot button issue as the White House and uh, California broke off negotiations just a few weeks ago. Um, right. California's six and 16 states have uh, sued the federal government over the possibility that EPA will rescind California's waiver mm. to set more stringent fuel standards. And, and I think the federal courts uh, could potentially be jammed up with quite a few 10th Amendment claims from states if, uh, if there's any moves by the administration or Congress to limit their ability uh, to enforce or, or promulgate uh, environmental regulations. So yeah, I just haven't seen. I think we're still early in the process um, from a business perspective. It just means uncertainty, right? It just how do right. I comply with regulations if they're on hold or if the state, this state's doing something? What about my business? Uh, does it change the the math around my uh, facilities that I operate in one state versus another? Uh, do I relocate those operations or close those down? I think that's going to be a, a big 
big question for a lot of companies at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, from a business perspective, let's talk some dollars and cents now. So most industry leading companies are proactive in compliance and may have already spent a, a bunch of money on programs created in anticipation of complying with upcoming rules. So even if these rules end up being rolled back, would it end up costing these companies even more to put the brakes on their efforts? And with potential changes in the political agenda over the next decade, what should companies be doing to prepare for this sort of uncertain, changing regulatory landscape? Yeah, so I'll, I'll address the first part of your question in terms of, you know, you know, would it end up costing these companies even more? Yeah. Uh, it really depends on the type of company and where they are in the in implementation phase, right? It can become a really complex cost-benefit analysis for companies uh, who are trying to put in uh, uh, air, air pollution controls or, or they've got to rerun their, you know, they're trying to figure out what to do with their wastewater. Um, mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. I, I worked at a regulated utility for five years, as you mentioned in the opening, and, and we had clauses in our rates that enabled us to collect money from customer bill on customer bills, I should say, uh, for environmental regulatory compliance over a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. So let's say that the mercury air toxics will get rolled back, which EPA has looked at discuss at doing. Uh, and I'm a I'm a rate regulated utility that has made upgrades to my air emission equipment to comply with mats, right? Right. Do I now have to credit back the money to customers paid to me to comply with regulations that mm. are that are no longer applicable? Hmm. These investments were all in the tens of, of millions of dollars. Right. Uh, can you imagine having to tell shareholders that the costs are now considered imprudent and that the money has to be refunded? And this is something that, that, that is actually being discussed at the Public Service or Public Utility Commission, depending on the state and how that regulatory oversight may, you know, for pricing your, your energy happens. This is actually being discussed whether or not they would have to refund that money. Mm. Uh, same thing goes for ash ponds. If I own a coal plant that has coal ash ponds, wet, you know, wet ash handling, right? Do I keep digging them or do I stop? Right. Um, uh, to add complexity, EPA has given states more oversight and flexibility when it comes to regulating coal ash disposal. So how do I how do I comply with all of these things? Mm. Um, and, and where do I spend my money? Where, what's the best utilization of that money? Depending on how I'm rate, you know, if I'm rate regulated or if I'm, you know, a, a shareholder owned utility or or any shareholder owned company at all, where do I tell my shareholders that the risks are and, and that we're going to you know manage those at the end of the day? So it's quite a confusing uh, landscape at this point in time. No, definitely. So any tips how to prepare for, for these uh, changes? Yeah, I mean, the best thing is obviously to stay on top of the regulations that are, that are out there, right? What's being mm -hmm. proposed? Um, where's the, where are they in the rollbacks? Um, work with the regulators in the states. Everybody you know, in industry works with regulators to help, um, uh, help craft good regulations, right? We always want good regulations. Somebody wants over, right. overly onerous or burdensome regulations that don't actually produce results. Right. Um, so it's it's really working with the stakeholders in those areas to make sure that uh, you know everybody is on the same page that the benefits don't outweigh the costs and the costs don't outweigh the benefits and everybody kind of gets everybody feels like they won a little bit right we all want to we all want to come away with a little bit of a win um, but uh, also then you know what's what's right do the right thing um, right uh, that was something that I learned at both my at, at a couple other jobs do the right thing. Um, does it make sense to continue to run your business in the way that you're running it today? Or do you want to look ahead and be a little bit more proactive in that respect? Yeah, absolutely. So sort of connected to that, uh, you know, 
companies also need to be aware of the reputational costs. You know, nobody wants to be known as a polluter. So how does reputation and branding come into play in this sort of regulatory environment? Yeah, you know, some might argue that there is no such thing as bad publicity, but I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> confident in saying that no business wants to be seen as a polluter. Right. How many billions of dollars has BP had to spend to rehab their image after the Deepwater Horizon incident, right? Right, uh, right. I'm hopeful that companies won't use uh, lack regulation, you know, regulatory oversight as a, as a defense for polluting. Uh, mm. We'll find out, I guess, over time. Mm-hmm. Um, I do find it interesting that uh, it, that there is a huge push from the investment community to get companies to address their environmental risks, such as climate change, water supply risk, hazardous chemicals. Uh, and these investors aren't just asking companies about their own operations; they want to know about their supply chain. Um, and these are these are these are not small investors, right? These are institutional investors with with hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars of assets under management. Right. Um, so they're really pushing companies to drive these things. I was actually reading an article the other day in, in which investors are pushing fast food companies to reduce their climate risks and water risks within their supply chain. So mm. this isn't going away. This is this is definitely something that's here to stay. And, and those reputational costs, they can be exceedingly high in the, in the long term um, for companies that don't, you know, aren't seen as sustainable, um, environmentally responsible, socially responsible at the end of the day. Right. So uh, in relation to these reputational concerns, uh, do you think some com- companies are choosing to take their efforts just beyond compliance, just on their own? Absolutely. Uh, and I, I think it's more than some. I think it's a lot. I think it's, it's, it's many. Right. Um, there's really a host of them that have gone above and beyond the compliance um, model. Um, these sustainability leaders have found that the benefits outweigh the investment costs and are, are really leading to better returns in their business. Uh, just a great example out there is Unilever. Um, they announced uh, recently that its uh, sustainable living brands recorded its fourth consecutive year of growth. Oh, wow. And that it grew 46% faster than the rest of the business in 2018. So unparalleled, uh, you know, performance at that point in time. You know, there's also, uh, you know, consumers and investors, uh, they're, you know, they're driving the shift in the way businesses act. Uh, there was a 2017 uh, communication CSR study by Cone, if you're familiar with them, that found that 63% of Americans are uh, are hopeful businesses will take the lead mm. and drive social environmental change. Mm. Um, so, you know, in the absence of government regulations, um, there is a movement afoot within just the broader community of humanity at this point in time. You know, that same study that Cone looked at or did, they, they found that 76% of Americans said they expect companies to support and address related climate change issues. So um, we know we, you know, the administration has left the Paris climate change, but uh, Paris hasn't left the American consciousness at this point. <laughs> right. I think, the, I think we're, we're going to continue to see this. Uh, I know we've had uh, a number of folks pledge money to this. Uh, Bloomberg pledged a fairly large sum of money to help cities and states address climate change. Um, so we're going to continue to see folks step up to the plate. Well, that's great. So um, back to the sort of compliance side of things. So it's, you know, between knowing what rules are in effect where across all of your facilities, if you're like a multi-facility employer, multi-state employer, plus keeping an eye on the potential costs of compliance or enforcement. This, this is all just a lot for EHS managers to keep track of. So, um, Ian, what strategies should these EHS managers pursue and how can maybe technology help? Yeah, Justin, it, it is quite a lot to keep up with. And 
Right. You know, thankfully there are uh, are several companies that do a really good job helping businesses stay apprised of the legislative and regulatory developments across the globe, as well as um, understanding what they need to do to comply with existing regulations. You know, mm-hmm. with with regards to the development of regulations or or legislation, you know, once these bills become law. Um, that's when companies need to know how to comply. And, and, and technology can really help in this area by centralizing and standardizing this information for end users mm. who may have a limited or no UHS background um, or experience at that time um, so that they know what they need to do to be in compliance. Do I need to go do an inspection? Is there a report due to an agency? Uh, do I need to be collecting certain pieces of data? Is there training requirements for other employees? Um, so those are important factors to keep in mind. And that's something that technology can really help with, you know, it's also important to understand that that regulatory content can be leveraged in, in a solution like Cordy so that users can audit against these requirements, set up team tasks or inspections, mm-hmm. ensure complete, you know, ensure key compliance requirements or obligations are being met. And the company really is maintaining their compliance. It's, it would be nice if a regulator does show up to be able to say, here's all of this. This is how you audit us is through our solution. Right, um, right. And it really does give users at the company, a holistic view of the regulatory requirements so that they can properly manage all of the risks um, associated with their operations. Um, and, and it provides end users who are completing these tasks and inspections and other uh, other key you know functions uh, an understanding of why they're doing this work so that they're not just kind of you know checking the box, right? So it can help build and strengthen um, a culture of compliance within your organization. Uh, lastly, uh, you know, leveraging technology, you know, companies can also start to go beyond that compliance realm, right? They can leverage mm-hmm. data to track and trend key HS programs and processes and start to ask questions about the operational developmental side of the business and see if there are more environmentally or socially responsible ways to produce their products or generate energy in the case of utilities, um, rather than relying on the old way of doing things all the time. So they've, they've got more data than they've ever had before EHS professionals do to make these, you know, to really insert themselves into the conversation. That's great. So as you mentioned before, your company, Cordy, is a leading provider of these types of uh, EHS technologies. Now, before we sign off, would you like to share anything else with our audience about what sets Cordy apart from other EHS technology providers on the market? Well, first off, let me let me thank you for the opportunity today to, to speak on an array of topics related to environmental compliance. Yeah, you're um, very welcome. Great discussion. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I hope the listeners find this informative. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with that said, I'll, I'll try not to sound too salesy. Um, uh-huh. I'll make two quick points. Uh, so one, we view our relationship with our clients as a, as a partnership. So we are always listening and learning from them as much as they are f- learning and, and listening from us, right? So mm-hmm. we know we don't know everything. And, and EHSQ is always evolving. So it's imperative that we have this exchange of ideas with our clients in order to develop and, and, and deliver the most comprehensive uh, applications out there. Uh, lastly, I think what separates Cordy from from the other players in the space is our EHSQ subject matter expertise. Um, it's found throughout our organization. It really helps our clients maximize the value of their technology investments. Um, and, and nearly half the company has worked in, in, in the industry as an environmental health or safety professional. So mm. we have really deep domain experience right. that enables us to really help companies understand how technology can deliver value for their organization, as well as actually make those deliveries through our technology solutions at the end of the day. Well, that's great. Yeah, this is this is certainly a complex issue, and we really appreciate you uh, sharing your expertise. Uh, thank you again, Ian, for taking the time to join us today on EHS on Tap. Thank you, Justin. Really do appreciate it once again. 
You're very welcome. Uh, and we also want to thank Cordy for sponsoring today's e uh, episode of EHS on Tap. And to our listeners, be sure to keep an eye out for new episodes of the podcast and keep reading the EHS Daily Advisor to stay on top of your safety and environmental compliance obligations, get the latest and best practices, and keep your finger on the pulse of all things related to the EHS industry. Until next time, this is Justin Scase for EHS on Tap.